Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, unfortunately, tonight we start with a bit of sad news and an appeal. Jesse Mallon, who is a fixture of the music scene in New York City on the Lower East Side, and of course, someone who Bruce has played with many times, tragically suffered a rare spinal stroke on May 4th and is currently paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah, very, very sad news. And a recovery fund has been set up to help them. Just go to sweetrelief.org slash Jesse Malin to, to donate. Yeah, and we donated. And certainly if you have a couple of extra bucks, think about it. It's just reading the details in Rolling Stone. It, 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 it truly is a tragic situation. Yeah, and Jesse's done a lot to help out other other musicians and other people in, in that community over the years, especially during COVID. So I think it's time to repay him and, and help him out a little bit. Shifting back to Bruce's tour, there have been a couple of shows over the weekend. He played in Werchter, Belgium. There have been some minor changes to the show and also an omission at the Belgian show that is notable. Yeah, he uh, he pulled out working on the highway in Darlington County last week. And then the last couple shows, he's done My Hometown, which was a tour debut. And then The River, which is which has gotten very, very favorable reviews. Sounds like it, it gives the show a little bit more emotional depth. But yeah, at today's show, June 18th in, in Belgium, he uh, he dropped Letter to You, the title track, obviously, from his, from the 20 album. And yeah, that's uh, that's not in the right direction for me. I guess the changes that we've gotten were positive. They were a start anyway, but to to drop one of the new songs, not not a, not the best step right now. There's been some information that perhaps he had to play a shorter show because it was a festival type setting and there was a time limit. But even if that's the case, dropping "Letter to You" over some of the other songs to me, makes no sense. We're, we started with eight songs off of Letter to You and Only the Strong Survive in Tampa. And now we would be down to four total from those records. As you just said, that is definitely not a move in the right direction. No, there's several of the songs I think he, he could have dropped. Uh, he's Street Shuffle. Kitty's Back come to mind first off, but obviously he's not. Doesn't seem to want to drop those as they seem to shine a, a light on the on the extended band, but, but still maybe cut something else, cut something from the encores. I don't know, but I guess with the river there, it really became more of a greatest hit set than it already was. And the river is a much better selection than what it replaced Johnny 99. Now I'm sure it's <laughs> a total coincidence, but in our last episode, we sort of deconstructed the 2023 version of Johnny 99. And I believe since then it's been dropped entirely. So again, yeah, let's not, well, let's not uh, screw, our, screw our arms up, patting ourselves on the back. Cause I, I don't no, think, no, I don't I'm think sure, that's the situation. I'm sure we have nothing to do with that, but, 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 but yeah. narrative wise much better. I think with my hometown followed by the river, into Last Man Standing. My concern, though, would be that it's just too many slow songs in a row. Of course, the river is is one of his his legendary songs. So I think if he loses anybody during uh, my hometown, he definitely would get him back during the river. And and obviously, the story preceding Last Man Standing always always seems to get the crowd uh, get the crowd's attention, and he's able to hold them in his palm for the most part. And moving on to tonight's main topic, this week marks the 30th anniversary since the legendary concert to fight hunger, which took place at Brendan Byrne Arena on June 24th, 1993. Of course, that is an archive release. And we've previously looked at the Vietnam Vet Show. We did a show on the famed Coliseum stand. And tonight we're going to turn our attention to this show which I have to say was perhaps the most dramatic concert I've ever attended. Dramatic? Uh, I guess that's because of the big, the way they set up the entrance of a certain saxophone player, huh? Well, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves and you're jumping all the way to the end. But yes, there are few shows that have made my blood pump like this one. Now, I was only 24 years old. I was very excitable at the time. And this was a night that built, of course, as you just mentioned, incredible things happened in the encores. 
and people knew that that was going to happen and just the drama to get there and the quality of the performance for my money. And, and I love the Count Basie show, but for my money, this was by far the best performance by this band. Okay. You see, I was uh, getting a little worried there that you were just going to focus entirely on, on the encores and ignore the, the first two sets, no. which were, which were just as, as amazing and just as great as, as anything they had done for, uh, during the encores. And it was an excellent performance. It was a pretty, I mean, relatively standard for what they were, what they had been doing all, all spring in Europe. So there wasn't, there weren't too many out of left fields, I guess the opener, I ain't got no home. And then, uh, and then I guess this was only the second performance of bus stop, uh, basically since 1975. Right. And the, with the first one being of course at the count basic. Yes, that is correct. And I think we should set the stage as to what was going on here. I don't know if any of our listeners really aren't familiar with this period, but of course, after the Tunnel of Love and the Amnesty Tours, Bruce went his own separate ways without the E Street Band. This was a tour he did with new musicians, and it was very polarizing within the Springsteen community. And they arrived after a European tour in 1993 back in the States to do two shows only in the U.S., one at Brendan Byrne, which was this concert to fight hunger, and the second would be the Kristen Ann Carr benefit at the Garden two nights later. And I think we can safely say the fan base was still doubting this band at this point, correct? Uh, you know, I wasn't plugged in in, in any way uh, except for basically Backstreet's Magazine and, their, and the hotline. So I really wasn't familiar with what people were saying about the band uh, unless it reached the level of, of, of Backstreet's um, of the magazine and the hotline. But I was all I was all in on these guys. I at that point, I loved everything that Bruce did. I love the albums, love the tour. I really enjoyed calling in and hearing the set list every night on the hotline and. I was ready for, for, for this show. It was, it was going to wrap up the tour. I had just graduated from college, kind of like a bookend actually to my senior year of college. Obviously I saw four shows at the, well, two at the Meadowlands and two at the Capitol Center right outside DC just before senior year started. And then just a few weeks after graduation, uh, driving up to Brindenburg. And coincidentally, this followed my third year of law school. I, I would shortly graduate and pack up and move to Los Angeles where I've been for the last three decades. So I think for both of us, there's a sense, I don't want to say melancholy, would you say that excitement of we were moving on to new phases in our lives. And these shows represent artistically, at least sort of in our minds, the gateway to those changes. Well, I would say it was kind of a, I don't know, can we call it a Bruce graduation ceremony? I feel like for both of us, I didn't actually, I didn't realize you had moved to, you moved to LA just after these shows. Yeah. But, it, you know, for both of us, it was kind of like, OK, we finished up one phase of our lives, getting ready to start a new one. And I feel like Bruce's this show and obviously and for you, I, I didn't go to the garden show that they kind of provided a, like I said, a graduation or a or a start or a fresh start to what lay next. And just as we were finishing up phases of our lives, I think we can safely say Bruce was finishing up a phase of his life. Perhaps he didn't know it at the time. He did go on and try and record with this band, but as we know, that was never released, and he moved on instead to reuniting briefly with the E Street Band and then went on to the Joe Tour before finally reuniting full-time with the E Street Band in the late 90s. So this was a day, I remember it so vividly, there was a lot of excitement because Clarence was on, I, it was Mike and the Mad Dog, right? You know, I have no idea. I was, I uh, definitely uh, was not in tapped in anyway to New York. Oh, did Radio. you, did, did you not know? I did not. Oh, because Clarence was on. It was, I, I'm 99% sure it was on the classic sports show, Mike and the Mad Dog. Chris Russo in particular is a huge fan of Bruce. He is to this day. And he sort of gave away that he was going to be at the show. Now, also, and I attended the show with your lovely wife, and it's just so funny thinking back on these things. We're lucky we're still not caught in traffic. We were supposed to go and meet up with people from, I think it was the old Prodigy board, but the <laughs> first incarnation of Springsteen fans on the internet. And there was a tailgate going on, and 
Claudine was going to pick me up and we were going to go. And I remember to this day, I was like, don't, she went up the West side highway to the George Washington bridge and we're lucky we're still not there. So we missed the tailgate with all of the internet fans, which at the time seemed so novel. You know, you, you think <laughs> back to these days and like, we were all meeting for the first time. And, and some of those people are, have become lifelong friends and, uh, as we've said before, without that entire community, uh, certainly this podcast would not exist and you would, of course, not be married. <laughs> That's true. And my own little personal story was that I tried for tickets. I didn't get them. And then I kept calling every morning, as Backstreet's had suggested to do, to, in case there was a drop. Never got one. Finally, I just said, I'm just going to go up without a ticket. And uh, I did. First time I ever did that. Found the ticket in the parking lot, paid 80 bucks, which is almost everything I had in cash in my wallet. And uh, But it was in the last row. I believe you were on the floor, probably within the first 10 rows. And No, we were not in the first 10 rows. I think we were in like the 15th or the 16th row. One of the things that happened <laughs> oh, was I'm slumming. pretty sure we got our tickets from a broker and we had paid. It was a, a decent amount, but it wasn't crazy. And of course, this was 1993, but we had put all our eggs into the garden show because of course it was going to be the final show. That was sort of uh, a miscalculation because <laughs> needless to say, the well, second to last show wound up as the better show. Well, you didn't know that at the time. No, but, we had no way of knowing that. No, but, but I ended up in the, like, as I said, I think second to the last row in the upper deck on the opposite side of the arena from the stage. So I was really far away, but I went in early. I was hoping to get, um, Man in Black, MIB, but he, uh, I was, I was by myself, so he was, he totally ignored me. I did see, I did see him upgrade somebody, so that was, that was kind of cool to see. And, but I made some new friends up there, so it actually worked out pretty well. Now let's go to the start of the show. As you said, it opened with "I Ain't Got No Home." In a way, this was one of the precursors to something Bruce would do with "If I Should Fall Behind," because he had a group of vocalists on stage, himself, Joe Ely, some of the background vocalists, including Bobby King. And they all took lines within the song. And that was, I think, the first time he'd ever done anything like that. That sounds about right. I remember being feeling the tension in the song and the way that it started off with Roy's synthesizer or Roy's keyboards. And they each, as you said, they each took took a few lines. And I remember going, who is that? Who is that? When, when Joe Ely... Was there? I don't think I ever I fully identified him until much later, maybe uh, by the time we got to we got to to the encores, and it was it was cool to see Bobby King take a, take a line, uh, Tommy Sims took a line, and I remember how when they all came together at the end, how it felt like the tension it was building and it felt so good. And but then I got to be honest though, when he when he went into the other three acoustic songs, some of a lot of that tension left. I feel like. Uh, it might have been better if he had gone straight into better days, but at the same time, I know that he was he was doing the three acoustic songs to open uh, open each show uh, in Europe, and of course, that goes back to the basic. Oh, I don't know. I thought the three acoustic songs worked really well. Seeds to me really reads in that arrangement, sort of like Dylan. And then you got Adam raised the cane, and of course, this hard land, which most of the audience was hearing for the first time <laughs> live or perhaps ever, because of course it was at that point unreleased. And and I thought the opening to that show was very effective. It, he was setting a tone and the I Ain't Got No Home in particular was very emotional. We all understood mm -hmm. why we were there. And I, I thought it all just played very well. And, and it made sense then that he would kick into better days. And from there, we were off and flying. Well, I think I think this is where my seats actually played played a role in how I was interpreting these songs, because I felt like he had lost everybody around me, basically. You know, as I said, we were basically in another zip code. And I feel like there was just a lot of talking, a lot of conversation going on, and I, which made it difficult to focus on hearing these songs. And I got to say, you know, you and I had heard this heartland through the magic of bootlegging at this time. So we were kind of singing along to it, I'm sure. Both well, and I had seen it at the Basie, of course. There you go. There you go. <laughs> An incredible moment that uh, really is hard to imagine <laughs> that it actually happened. But one other thing I'll point out about the acoustic set and listening to the archive release, you can hear the crowd is really revved up when he's talking before the intro to Adam raised the cane. I, I just felt it was sort of like 
it was a pressure cooker that arena that night, and we were just waiting for sort of the cork to pop, and of course that wouldn't <laughs> happen for another two and a half hours or so. But it still it still kind of popped, and when in, when he went into better days, though, I think that that release. Yeah. That release from the acoustic, the attention that cre- created by the acoustic uh, opening, and certainly the "I Ain't Got No Home," really made that one explode. I think even more than more than it had a year previous. And "Better Days" was always highly effective. I, it's a great song. As we know, he probably should play it more. <laughs> and I think the crowd really enjoyed it. By then, whatever reluctance they had towards the band, and without question, I think that existed. As I said earlier. They were into the songs. Uh, Better days. Lucky Town was tremendous. Mm-hmm. It sure, it sure was. I remember hearing that solo. That solo just kind of went on and on, and I was that was great. And and I love hearing it on the, on the archive. It's one of my favorite songs from the album, and certainly in front on that tour as well. Yeah, and the version of Atlantic City in '93 was always great. I I think that they had hit a groove somewhere in Europe. You know, when we were at the Count Basie and we saw all that rare material, one wouldn't have known how that was going to translate. And for the most part, some of those songs weren't either played at all again or they were played maybe once. I think Point Blank Acoustic was played once or twice. He went back to relying on a lot of the material from the two new records. And he also, as we'll see here, started bringing in covers that more effectively utilized the band than perhaps he had been doing in 1992. I feel like Atlantic City was one of the one of the better songs that utilized the the backup singers. Darkness yes. was too, interestingly yeah. enough. And but of course those he had been playing all the previous fall and summer. But I guess are you jumping ahead to Satan's Jewel Crown when you when you well, say that Yeah, that was what I was thinking, but let's talk about 57 channels because for all the discounting we do of the song, listening to this archive the other day, it was really fiery that night. It was good, except I don't think the call and response, <laughs> I don't think that aged very well at all. I, I, that's no. kind of cringe at this point. But but up until then, I thought, yeah, it worked really well, and it was really it was really cooking. And it's funny, it's as you said, it's it's not a song that it's popular for a lot of people, but he really went all in on that song back in ninety two, ninety three, like it or not, and. And they nailed the performance of it, and they made it interesting, if if nothing else. Nothing if not interesting. <laughs> and that was followed by Badlands. Now, Badlands, to me, was always the weakest of the E Street Band songs that he played with the 92-93 band. What do you think about that? Yeah, it it may not have translated as well. I Certainly without the sax solo in the middle, uh, it, it, it lost something. But at the same time, it goes along with the whole give the people what they want and people wanted to hear the the familiar e street stuff even if it wasn't e street so the crowd was into it and but granted it hasn't aged well if i want to listen to a version of badlands obviously i'm not going to no. this tour but but people were into it and it got the it got the, the crowd going so it's kind of hard to to criticize it at this point that was really where the tension existed, as we know, because if Bruce had probably had his choice, he might have played no East Street Band songs on this tour. And early on, he discovered that there needed to be some give for audience reception. And some of the songs worked incredibly well. Atlantic City that you, you mentioned, Darkness. But Badlands, to me, it has always sounded thin in mm-hmm. with this band. Uh, exactly. It's lacking yeah. the sax solo. Zach Alford is a world-class drummer. For anyone who wants to take shots at him, he's played with Bruce, Billy Joel. He played with Bowie. He's just top-notch. But this was not a song that showcased him well. Uh, you know what was really missing for Badlands was Danny or, or an organ. Roy could only do so much over there. But so when I heard it the other day, listening on headphones, I kept expecting to hear Danny's incredible organ playing on, in my left ear and it just wasn't there. And I think that adds a considerable amount to the thinness that, that you were talking about. And next up was Satan's Jeweled Crown, which we mentioned a little earlier. What did you think about this one? Well, it's a it's a country gospel song, as Bruce described it when he uh, when he introduced it. And um. 
I'm the son of, of two big bluegrass fans. And actually, when I when I heard it was debuted in Europe uh, the previous month, I actually went and tracked down their uh, went through the record collection to find it. And it was on one of Emmylou Harris's albums. And and I put it on and yeah, just loved it. And uh, and just to have to hear Bruce do it. And, and that kind of arrangement was just was just beautiful. It's a completely stunning version, and it really showcased the vocalists, again, in a way that the 92 segment of the tour, I think, failed to do. Yeah. One thing that we can debate is whether the fans would have been more accepting of this band had he gone in a direction further from the E Street Band. And, of course, this is something that's been debated for a long time <laughs> because it he really didn't go – as deep into a change of sound as you would have expected with the band that he put together, at least originally when the, when the tour commenced in 1992. You are right. He, uh, he was trying to get away from the E street sound, but he couldn't do it. He probably couldn't do it as much as he had initially wanted to do it. Um, I think he did feel there was enough, pressure from the fans to, to hear the E street stuff. Uh, you, you know, there's the famous story about, was it the second, the third night in, in Italy and they were just chanting for born to run. So from there, it was just hard to, to not play it. I think he did a great job with thunder road, making an, an acoustic version instead of the full band. And, and that's, I think that's aged better than, than born to run for, from this tour. And, but I don't know if he really, I don't know how accepting the fans would have been at the time. That's 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 a big question. I mean, there are looking at the set list, there are already only what one, two, three E Street songs in the whole first set, and then one, two, three, four, five. I guess about five or six in the second set. So it was still about I don't know what about half and half E Street and non E Street. I don't know how much more he could have gone. And well, still you're not have, counting still the have, could- still, what. You're not counting the acoustic songs because, of course, all three of those are also E Street Band songs. No, I was not. I, Atlantic City, Badlands, My Hometown, that's three. Right. Yeah. And, and then, then Seeds. Then, well, I, I'm not counting Seeds. It's an acoustic okay. song. Okay. And then that's in the, fair. In the second set, you got Because the Night, Brilliant Disguise, The River, Who'll Stop the Rain, and USA. In Light, in Light of Day, I guess that was basically E Street after it was played every night on the Tunnel of Love Tour. Well, let's get back to the first set. <laughs> One of these street songs was next. That was my hometown. Of course, it made total sense on this evening. It was a show that was designed to highlight issues going on in the tri-state area and, and really nationwide in terms of World Hunger Year. And but, but it, it, was, it was it was almost an every nighter, though. It wasn't like he pulled it, it out special for New Jersey. It was basically played every night on that tour. Even in Europe, ninety-three. I'm, I'm going back. Yeah, my home. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I actually didn't even realize that. Yeah, it was played at most shows, and uh, maybe maybe every night was overstating, but it was certainly done at at most shows in Europe. Again, it worked really well on this night, and there was just a build to the show, and this was a part of it. As we were getting to the end of the first set, I think the word that we should, probably should use is anticipation. There was an anticipation rising through the crowd for really the entire show. I think that about sums it up. And to to their credit, they to the crowd's credit, they didn't try to push that. Um, they they let the show play out, and they were able to really appreciate what was happening on stage as it happened, and weren't yes. weren't just entirely looking forward to the encores, where I guess apparently most people knew, except for me, that that Clarence was was going to show up. And but yeah, you're right, and I think that did give it. That anticipation also added some tension to it in terms of this is great and the show is playing out really well, and but we're looking forward to exploding later. <laughs> that really does explain the final three songs of the set. And those have become, I think, fan favorites at this point. Leap of Faith, he jumped into the crowd. There was a hilarious moment after the song where he had lost one of his boots, I think, taken I off of him. Yeah, I don't think yeah, I don't think it was lost. I think someone took it off. Well, and- yeah, lost is a euphemism for it was stolen. <laughs> and you can hear him on the recording saying, "Yeah, I lost my shoe," and he was calling back for another one. So I assume that he always has a backup of everything he wears. And then he actually said, "Oh, she can keep it," but uh, she she gave us she gave it to him. 
Well, you and, also hear him say, get me an stop. acoustic guitar for, yeah, for bus stop. Yeah, because was, apparently he was going to play bus stop to kill some time there while he found <laughs> his footwear. Exactly. So that would have been really interesting because, first off, I believe it would have been the only time on the tour that he played something else in within those three songs. I think in Philly, You're right. I think in Philly in December, there was some kind of piano jam when he had to take a, a bathroom break. He, After, yeah, there, there was like a boogie-woogie jam. We yeah, were there. there you go. There you go. But but otherwise, this would have been the only time that an actual song would have been performed with within that trio. And and then it got moved to the start of the encore. So I wonder what would have happened had he start done... Of the, start of the second set. Right, right. My bad. Yeah, he would have started the second set with something different other than 82nd Street. So that would have That's been, right. you know, the alternate history there. Well, the first set concluded with Man's Job and Roll the Dice, which included Everybody Needs Somebody to Love. And then the lights came up. I don't fully remember what I did during the break, but I definitely remember that as we got closer to the second set starting, there was that sense of anticipation we talked about, and it was really starting to be elevated. You could feel it. It was quite palpable in the building. Well, I have no recollection of what I did during the break. I probably talked to some people around me, not sure if I got a drink or not. But uh, but I didn't know. I had no no idea what was coming. So I, I can't say that I was feeling that sense of uh, anticipation as well. So as the second set is now starting, obviously he comes out, he opens with us, this bus stop. Do you recall what you were thinking? Was it, were you surprised I, that that was something that was being played? Pretty much, yeah. Like, holy crap, he's doing he's doing the bus stop. And but then, of course, at that point, I'm I'm able to go, yeah, he did it back in uh, back at the Basie, but he hasn't done it since. So I was able to kind of recall that. So I knew something special was going on, and I loved Roy's contribution to it on on keyboards. I thought that added 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 a, a cool element as well. Bruce was really locked in the whole night, but starting with the bus stop, you could really tell. He was focused and he was on. And that continued as we went at the Because Tonight. This was a song I really enjoyed with the 92-93 band. It's perhaps played at a slower pace than with the E Street Band, but I thought it worked really well. Oh, I agree. I, I thought this one worked tremendously well on this tour. And I, I thought the band really brought something to it. And of course, Bruce's guitar playing was off the charts. Just really great stuff. And the show was about to take off. He brought out Patty for Brilliant Disguise, and there was a really sweet moment at the end of the song. I think he surprised her because they had never done anything like that, I don't think, on a public concert stage. And he he took her in a, his arms, and they started slow dancing, and it was just so sweet and so tender. Okay. I, I don't remember that, I but I hear him on the recording say, dance with my wife, and but then apparently she uh, went backstage and kind of disappeared because he wanted yes. her, to come, her to come back out for human touch. Do you remember what kind of uh, what what things were like on the stage at that point? It's hard to recall exactly. I think he did surprise her with the dance and she got a little <laughs> a little off kilter there. Exactly. And then she was supposed to stay for human touch, but I think she just forgot about it and left. <laughs> And you hear the commentary that he's making. You're right. He's like, she left. Where did she go? And then they finally, I guess, found her and, and she came back out. And that, again, is a, a wonderful version of human touch. But what's interesting is that this was pretty much, except for one song, this was pretty much the second set that he was playing throughout Europe. And so it was it was good to have her back on on human touch after she hadn't been in Europe for most of the tour and and where she did play on on the previous fall and summer. She did a great job on that tour. It was obviously only guest spots, but I thought she really added something to both songs, and that was especially true during this show. Exactly, exactly. And she she would also come back out for the encores to add some vocals, but I think everybody on the Jersey Shore came out <laughs> for the encores. Well, we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to that. And then uh, we followed Human Touch with The River, which was yes. another tremendous version. Now, one thing I want to point out to people is – Shane Fontaine doesn't get a lot of respect, I don't think, among the fan base. But listen to what he's playing in, in the left channel. And he's really doing some some interesting stuff there on, on an acoustic. And he really should be more more respected, I believe, by from people like us, from the fans. Because he did a tremendous job on that tour. And I don't think he got nearly enough respect. That's 100% accurate. And look... 
they had one thing against them, this band. They weren't the E Street band. And that that wasn't their fault. If you were going to be mad at anyone, be mad at Bruce for selecting them and for getting rid of the band, the E Street band. But these were very talented musicians. And by this point, as I've said, they they were very locked in. The Who'll Stop the Rain worked incredibly well. And then there was a fiery version of Souls of the Parted. And this is really where the show... Mm-hmm. The parts from the other shows that he had played <laughs> because Souls of the Departed was coming to an end. And at every show it had gone into board in the USA. And I and I remember, I remember seeing him turn and saying something, and suddenly they the band went into what became Living Proof. And it was just such a shock because they had been doing the same thing night after night after night, and now something else was in there. But it was also tonally and in terms of a narrative going from who'll stop the rain to souls of the departed. And instead of going straight into born USA, putting in living proof after souls of the departed, I thought it was just stunning. And that was the best version for my money that of living proof that's ever been played. Okay. I can, I can believe it. It's usually, it was usually played on that tour in the first set right after I believe Satan's dual crown and or after my hometown and it absolutely had an extra layer of yes. of of power at this show coming out of souls of the departed because he souls did not end he he segued right into living proof and i think that hit a little bit harder and of course the fact that he's talking about his son being yes. born in living proof and coming out of souls of the departed where the second verse talks about a a murdered uh, child in 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 LA I think that gave it a little bit more uh, more texture. For sure. And of course, if we ever did get a chance to speak to him, we could never ask every question we wanted to. But <laughs> it is so interesting because that seemed like such a compelling pairing. And I think it was pretty much off the cuff that he decided to do that. What in that moment suddenly came into his head like, wow, if I play Living Proof here, it's going to really connect everything because I feel that's what the song did there. And then the born in the USA. Now this is a polarizing version of born in the USA because how do we describe it? I think it's, he sang it in a totally different cadence than he had previously. And really ever since it's, it's a one-time only performance of the song. Yeah. The phrasing is a little bit different and it doesn't, some of it works and but most of it doesn't for me, but it's such a powerful, powerful song that it's still it's still okay with me. But the nowhere to run, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, the way he says that is kind of uh it's it's kinda it's kinda cringeworthy <laughs> at this See, point. See, I don't feel that way. Okay. In a way, I don't you think he did that to prevent people from singing along? That seems to me, when I was listening to it the other day, that was what I finally concluded, that it was like coming after Who'll Stop the Rain, Souls of the Departed, Living Proof. He did not want people singing along in a jingoistic manner with Born Hmm. in the USA. But everyone was singing the chorus anyway. They didn't need him uh, rephrasing it or putting it in a a different cadence, as you said, to to sing that. So I think, so I'm not really sure that totally worked if that was his intent. But uh, it's sure. But coming out of the previous two songs, as you said, was always that was always a highlight for me. Coming out of Souls of the Departed, I, th- I thought that combo was always powerful, and Living Proof did not really take away from that power. Oh, I think it added to it. And again, this was in terms of a complete hour or so. Just to me, the high point of this band and. I know people are going to say, well, what about the encores? Obviously the band <laughs> wasn't alone at that point. I'm talking about just when this band was on stage and it was that one entity. I thought this entire show, I remember that the feeling in the arena, everyone knew they were seeing a great show, even without what was the cup. This was, if he needed to win the audience over for this band, he did it on this night for, with this crowd. I can see that they were everything was on. It was the they, they, yeah. This was a this was a show they had been playing for two or three months in Europe, 
it was down. They had it down. And it was, it's not really that much different than that Berlin show they released from, from May 14th. And, and that was an extremely well-performed show as well. And they just had it. As, as you said, they were on this night. I think all the factors that, that you've already mentioned, the anticipation, the tension, the way that they were, it was his hometown crowd. I believe that contributed as well. And, and I, and hopefully that audience was, I'm sure they were more open to this band at this point because they knew this was the only time that he was going to be playing that year anywhere in the States, except for, you know, two nights later, but that was, but that was it. But yeah, he had them in the palm of his hand for this one. And the seconds had ended as all the shows did with light of day and uh, just another Titanic version <laughs> of the song and very lengthy for sure, <laughs> which I I'd sort of forgotten about before listening the other day. I was like, how long does this go on for? But it was so yeah. much fun when he did that shtick with turning his head and the crowd cheered in one segment. And then he turned his head to another segment of the crowd and they cheered. Some of it is just nostalgia for me. And p- perhaps people are like, OK, it's too much. But I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I was realizing that he went on a little bit too long with that, but it was kind of what's cool about it now anyway, is that you hear him, you hear the crowd in the left channel and then the right channel and then the left channel. And so that kind of gives you a sense of what Bruce himself was hearing, hearing on stage just by a slight, a slight turn of his head. So that was, that really showed his power there, what he can do with just, just a head turn. (laughs) And and of course, the the palm of his hands. Right. But, and of course his guitar playing on that one was amazing. I just, yes. I mean, the, uh, go back to the version from unplugged and I think this one tops it tenfold. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip podcast. Every week I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up and coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Again, just a fabulous show, and we were just getting started. They left the stage. Do you remember what you were thinking? Well, you didn't know Clarence was there. So no your, your perspective on the show at this point is a lot different than mine because I'm sitting next to your wife while we were standing. Nobody sat the entire night in that arena, I don't think. And we now knew something big was going to happen. And it was... A big moment for, well, it was a big moment for me. It was going to be a big moment for everyone because these two men had not been seen playing music together, of course, since 1988. And we know what that pairing means. And I just remember like feeling almost like lightheaded in anticipation. When was this going to happen? I was trying to focus on the show, which I thought was amazing, but also knowing that this was out there it was just it, it really crazy. <laughs> well, he really let it unfold that it's at, yes. at a nice leisurely pace. And in that time, you, you got an amazing version of Settle for Love with Joe Ely. Joe, it's Joe Ely's song. I guess, was this the first time or did, that, that tour was the first time that Bruce actually said to a guest, hey, let's play one of your songs. And because he I did it so. with he did it with Elliot Murphy uh, the previous summer in Paris. I think it was called Rock Ballad. Not not exactly the most. I think it was an acoustic song, actually. And then he did Settle for Love with with Ely in I guess it was Dublin. And obviously we have a soundboard of that one. That sounds amazing. And of course, I guess two more songs with Jerry Lee Lewis at that show and then back here. And so I guess this may be the first time it ever happened in the States that that Bruce was playing a song with his band for somebody else or for somebody else to sing lead vocals. Right. And Joe Ely did a great job, tough position to be in because again, the anticipation was rising and here was this guy. None of us knew who he was really singing the song, but because it was so good, we yeah. all went with it. Yeah. It was a, 
it's a great song. It's I wasn't familiar with it before this night, and I'm not going to say that I went out the next day and, and bought the album, but it certainly has stayed with me for, for a long time. And when I finally bought the bootleg, actually, I guess it was that December. Uh, it was actually one of my favorite tracks from 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 that uh, from that set. Now, the next song featured a guest that was well known to everyone, and of course, I'm referring to Little Steven. And they did Glory Days, and the crowd was ecstatic during that entire performance. But again, that was a song that they had done every night on the tour. Yes. Um, so and so, it really wasn't that much of a stretch. You brought Stephen Stephen out. He had been there the previous summer when when he did it. Then right when what the last night at the Meadowlands, August twelfth. <laughs> Steve had guested August 12th. I believe he was also on stage for Sandy and for Rosalita, but I'd have to double check that. We really hadn't got to the envelope pushing at this point yet. No, but I I do think it is important to note the crowd was much more into the show, I think, than any of the shows the previous summer at the Meadowlands. As we know, the previous summer, especially the early shows, uh, it's well reported how nervous Bruce was before the first show back in New Jersey in 1992. The audience was more of an approve it to us mode. And while I do think that there were still doubts about this band, maybe because it was only one of two shows that were going to happen, or maybe because at this point, much of the crowd did know that Clarence was in the building. I think the crowd was more eager for a release this night than on some of the shows the year before. Okay. Or maybe they had just accepted that accepted the band that this was not E street and he wasn't going to be playing with E street. So might as well enjoy what, who he's playing with now and just enjoy the music. And of course I, I love Bruce's line and in, in that at the end, the glory days about uh, should the person next to you, your underwear <laughs> that always, cra- that I, I love that line. It always cracks me up. That actually made me laugh when I was listening the other day as well. <laughs> of course, I always think back to uh, the first part of that, uh, going back to, you know, put your hands in the air like you just don't care. And then I believe Kenny Main on, on Sports Center, we used to say, throw your hands in the air like you have no concern for repercussions. So I always go back to that in my yeah. mind anyway. Sorry. Sorry to take away. Uh, go back to ESPN Sports Center <laughs> with that one. And now dragging it out a little bit more, that (laughs) anticipation and allowing this encore to build. He took the stage alone for Thunder Road, which had been done at most of the shows on the tour and certainly regularly in 93. But again, it was just a little bit of a respite in terms of the surging energy that was going on, especially after Steve was on stage. And then when Thunder Road ended, he called out and Southside came on stage. And of course, these two guys, the byplay between them is always so entertaining and they're giving each other the business. <laughs> and even to now, as I think about it, like I feel like my heart start racing. And that's what I felt that night. I think at that point, I was trying to remember, I, I, well, your wife won't remember, <laughs> but I think we were up on our seats. I think everyone on the floor at the start of It's Been a Long Time got up on their seats and I just remember such glee in that building as Steve and Southside and Bruce sang It's Been a Long Time. That was the first time they'd ever done it on Bruce's stage. They had done it a couple of times on Southside's stage. And Claudine and I were lucky to be at the Pony one night when they did it. But to see it in this building with that crowd, with the way the show built, it was absolutely a perfect moment even though it was about to be surpassed i love that album when it came out obviously and so i was thinking yeah this is this is it right here you know these three guys doing the song just like it just like it's on the album with the horns just a tremendous performance and it was i believe it was the first time that all three sang in public right i believe when you saw them in december that Steve was not there. Is that correct? He he was not. No. Okay. So this was the first time all, all all three sang it together in public, and that was not lost on me. I was I was digging every minute minute of that one, and I had no idea what was coming. So I was uh, just loving life at that point. When the song ended, Bruce turned around and he counted down, and Tenth Avenue started. And this is really 
the most dramatic moment I've ever experienced at a concert. The song started to build. I think the band was pretty amped up. They were playing it too fast. Bruce <laughs> said a little bit slower now, and they and they brought it down a little. And the crowd knew what was going on. And the volume in that arena started to rise as Bruce started to sing 10th Avenue. And it would peak about two minutes later when he sang the line and the change was made up town and the big man joined the band. And I, I, I don't think any of us in that building, in the audience or on the stage for that matter, has ever experienced anything like the sound in that building when Clarence walked out on the stage. Yeah, that was uh, pretty freaking loud. Uh, I remember on the on the bootlegs, it drowned out the music. It's not quite that way on the on the official release, but it's there. And you're, and of course, if you're listening and you were there like we were, the you you remember back to that to that moment and the excitement that we felt in that arena. I remember I was, as I said, I made friends with these guys. They were about 10 or 15 years older than me. And I uh, actually lifted one of them in the air when, when Clarence came on, I was like, Holy crap. And he's here. He's here. So that was uh yeah, that was pretty mind blowing. That was mind blowing. Cause as you, as you keep pointing out, I had no idea what was, what was, what was in store for us when it, and then it finally happened. Boy, that really does give it a totally different perspective of when he walked out on that stage, you didn't know in advance that he was there. That would be pretty mind blowing. It was. It's like I kind of I think there might have been whispers in the audience, or I heard Clarence is here. But you know how you know how that stuff goes. It's you know it's you you don't know what's real, and obviously there's it's almost like a game of uh, of telephone (laughs) with with your friends, and you never know uh, what's right, what's wrong, and so I just kind of took it all with a grain of salt, and but just like he's here. Oh my God, he's here. And of course, his mic was not operational. Now, on the archive release, you can hear the sax. I actually wrote the review for Backstreets at the time. I pressed really hard to get an answer to find out how they had the sax there. We were told that the sax actually was recorded. For some reason, it didn't go out to the arena, but that they did have the track on the tape. Some people are dubious of that. All I can say is that's what we were told. Tough situation for them either way, because if they did import it from another show, which again is not what we were told, but to not have any sacks on the track in this moment when Clarence has just walked out on stage for this absolutely historic guest spot would have also been weird on the archive. Don't you agree? Oh, Absolutely. And but but uh, I believe Steve and Bruce put their vocal mics up to his saxophone to make sure it was heard. I believe they they even knew that it wasn't going out. That was during Born to Run, not during 10th Avenue. Okay, my bad. Okay, yeah, yeah. And but and then what the weirdest thing about the archive release was that you hear him say, and kid, you better get the picture. Right. I I don't remember hearing that anywhere, either in the arena or on the bootleg. Do you? I don't. And again, we inquired about these things. I can only report what I was told at the time. I try not to let that be too big of a deal for me because my personal opinion is generally they shouldn't be playing around with these archive releases too much. Now, this is again, a very difficult spot for them. If in fact they didn't have the sacks, but if they, did put in the line of him singing, that doesn't make anywhere near as much sense. Not at all. That would have been weird. So I wonder if Clarence had some kind of mic down there or did he, maybe he just sang it into his, his sax mic. <laughs> I guess that was, uh, was soon to crap out on him, but that was, that was wild. That was weird to hear it on, on, on the official release. And it was a moment that could never be repeated. I, I think for the fans, it was really their chance to show their love for the East Street Band, which had gone away at, without anyone knowing that they were going away. When we last saw them in 88, nobody knew they were going to be fired. And then they were gone and Bruce was here with this new band. And it was just fabulous that the, all of those guys, Steve, Max, who would join the stage in a moment, Bruce, Southside, that they were all on stage during this incredible set of encores and able to all reconnect and 
really symbolize what the Jersey Shore had stood for all those years. That's that's a good that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he uh, having Clarence there and the warmth and the love that he was shown. That was yeah. They hadn't had a chance to say goodbye basically in, in '88. I mean, he didn't even play New Jersey in '88. So having uh, that opportunity in that building to to show some love to him, I think, meant a lot to the fans and, and obviously to him too. And from there, as Bruce said, we can't have the big <laughs> man here without doing this one. They did Born to Run. As you noted, they Bruce and Steve helped make sure that his solo was projected <laughs> to that venue because we the crowd – and some of it may have been just the extreme noise – you really couldn't hear anything. It was all a blur. I mean, when I listen back to it now, I think back to just that blur of energy and noise. And it, it was it was really – have you ever experienced anything like that ever again? No, not, no, never. I think that was it. I think that was the, you know, the impromptu reunion, even though I'm sure it was planned days in advance. Uh, of of the E Street Band, and obviously the next time they played New Jersey, that was it, it was the E Street Band. It was officially Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. So that yeah, that moment uh, was it was a huge deal at the time. There's only one other time that I can really think of where the crowd was anywhere near that loud and gave me the sort of goosebumps that I had that night. And that, of course, was on July first, two thousand. Similarly, when the E Street Band chant started. Oh, okay. I can see that. I don't think the crowd was that loud that no, night. No, it was nothing was as loud as what happened here. <laughs> I think the emotion was certainly there on July 1st, 2000, but it wasn't as loud as it was that night. As you said, nothing was that, was that loud. <laughs> Maybe the Beatles, right? <laughs> that's what it really, I think, must have been like. That's That's how loud it was. Right. And you know who I think was incredibly happy to have Clarence there? Crystal. Crystal, Crystal Talifiero. Talifiero. Yes. I, I can't say her name. Uh, she must have been relieved to have, have Clarence take his solo back uh, after playing it for, for the entire tour. And, and that was one uh, one solo that sh- could never be replicated by anybody else. And it no. always it always sounded so, so thin. It's, I mean, she tried her best, but it just wasn't the best opportunity or the best situation for her. She was not meant to play the sax on on Born to Run. No, and we're not going to get into any negativity over the next show, but I think part of the problem with what occurred there was the fact that, as we know, the E Street Band reunion happened two nights earlier, and at the Garden, fans had expectations now that were not going to be met. And it was weird that night at the Garden that Crystal played the sax solo after hearing Clarence doing two nights earlier. But again, that we're not going to get into that tonight. And we're talking about this classic show, <laughs> but it, it is worth, it, it is worthy of pointing out after uh, born to run. He went with the, what had become the traditional part of the encores on that tour, my beautiful ward. And then he brought back out Joe Ely, Susie Tyrell making an appearance with Patty at this show. And was this the first time they played Blown Down This Road? I believe so. I can't, I can't imagine another time when they played it, but I could be... It's, it was not familiar with me at the time, so I believe this was it. I was I was pretty uh, encyclopedic by this point in terms of what had and had not been played. And uh, yeah, I, I think this was the E Street debut. Not E Street debut, God. This was the live debut from, from Bruce of this song. And I had forgotten that Susie was, was there until I was listening to the listening to it the other day and it's like wow that's a violin with i assume that's Susie, but i could be wrong and, and then of course you know patty was there that was that's got to be the most hootenanny like time of of any time that bruce has had on stage it may be the sound check at that second holiday show in 2000 but 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 i think this might beat it well and a very curious choice well done but a curious choice in the middle of the E Street reunion to drop this sort of hootenanny in there <laughs> but i think the crowd was just so blissful at that point they went with it <laughs> they, yeah they were all smoking a cigarette by this point um <laughs> but bruce did kind of uh he brought it home he he basically said i you know well, he didn't basically he said i opened the show with the with the Woody Guthrie song so i'm going to play another one here and that song is about having not having enough uh i'm i'm gonna 
about having enough food and and that really and that ties it back in obviously to the entire point of the evening of of raising money for to yes. relieve for, to relieve hunger in, in New Jersey. And uh, a good pairing with my beautiful award. Now, I think what Bruce was looking to do here was was sort of punctuate, as you said, the theme of the evening before going back to the Jersey Shore celebration. And that is what happened because after blowing down this road, he brought back out Southside, Patty the Horns. And if Even. the last song was a Hootenanny, this was pure <laughs> Jersey Shore soul music because they went into having a party. And that's not something that... I think that this is probably the only time actually that Bruce has done having a party, a full version. I'm not talking about like the 60 second abbreviated, just him and Steve version that was done July 31st, 2012 or anything like that. Uh, This is the only full version of the song he's ever done at one of his own shows, right? I think so. I believe the 77 New Year's Eve, 77. Um, I want to feel like, he did it then, but it was with Southside and the Asbury Jukes and the E Street Band. So maybe that doesn't that doesn't really count. But no, it's never been. I don't think it's ever been done otherwise at an actual Springsteen concert. God, it was so good. <laughs> that was uh, that was amazing. Yeah, I got to. Uh, yeah, that was something else because I I don't think I I seen Southside much at all up to that point. I I saw him a lot in the like 93 on and i don't think i'd ever seen him do that song so that was uh that was fun that was amazing i was all in on south side at that point we had been going in the 80s to the ritz in new york city and uh, of course down to the shore and uh, at whatever theater shows he played and he also played the garden state arts center a bunch of times and it was Great to see him there and and the love that those men have for one another still to this day is it's just great to see. And it, it, it really speaks to the scene. And that was what was being captured here. It was, <laughs> it was about brotherhood and camaraderie. And I, that was what the audience felt too, uh, you know, and I still feel it listening to this show 30 years later. Yeah. They, there was a bond there that they'd all, all that had been created down in Asbury park. And, and they brought that bond uh, to this show and everybody was <laughs> on their best behavior. And it's uh it was certainly a moment, a moment to be had and not replicated since at all. No, no. I don't, I guess they, they never did have a party at the, at the holiday shows, but they certainly did some, some of this other material. So yes. I guess just having a party does, does kind of stand on its own. And that was followed by Jersey girl, Max guesting as well as the horns. And I think we figured it was going to be the capper to the evening. It again was very sweet and, well-received by the crowd, but it wound up that there would be one more song after Jersey Girl. Well, I thought Jersey Girl sounded really good. I I had forgotten that the horns played on it. And so listening earlier, I thought, wow, this is actually a really good version because I'm not usually a fan of this song. Sometimes I feel like he panders to the Jersey crowd when he plays this. Um, And so I'm a little off-putting. It's a little off-putting to me, but that version with the horns, hmm. Sounded really, really good. I was kind of surprised he didn't he didn't introduce Max before the song, but uh, it's, he did it at the end. That was I, I thought he would have done it earlier. And then they did have the one final song, which they had played a bunch of times in Europe, like every, almost it's every all, night for the last for the previous month, right? Yeah, it's all right. Which Southside guested on, Steve Van Zant guested on, the Horns guested on, and Bobby King, which oh, yeah. was a f- member of the ninety two ninety three band, was featured on the song very effectively. Actually, I forgot he uh, Bobby King sang on "Having a Party" as well. He had he had some uh, lead vocals on that one. Yeah, that that's sounded true. pretty good. Doing some soul twisting, some soul twisting. But yeah, it's it's all right. I forgot that Southside was on it. I didn't hear him on the recording, but. Yeah, that was. It's almost like it was uh, anticlimactic with that one, but I think it it worked cr- quite well in it, despite that. Yeah, and it was very late at that point. <laughs> <laughs> this is almost a four. This was almost a four hour show. Yes, and of course they took a break in the middle. Yes, so I did. We didn't get out of there till way past midnight, if memory serves. That I believe is correct. Yeah, and then I went to the Jersey Shore and got so drunk I couldn't see. Anyway, uh, let's. But great, great show, right, Hal? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, great is an understatement. Uh, again, it's hard to account for, I think, my youthful exuberance. Thinking back on it now, I, this really is one of the high points for me. I know it's not an E Street Band show, but just the way the night unfolded and the level of happiness and what was experienced that night, just truly memorable experience. Oh my God. It was such an amazing night. Uh, just the, the solid set. The, the performance was just, as you said, that was one of the best that, that, that they did on that tour. And then to cap it with, with, with the Jersey set, basically it's, it's hard to top this kind of show because there hasn't been that kind of absence. And it was uh, – this show could not be repeated at this point. No, unless, this show you know. was a one-time only thing. A lot of people will be happy about that because it meant that Bruce eventually <laughs> got back with the band and, and stayed with them. Of course, certain members of the band, unfortunately, are no longer with us. And I think in a way it makes this night even that more powerful. Again, just seeing the bond between Bruce and Clarence, who really were the symbol of the E Street Band together, of course, on the cover of Born to Run and the kiss on stage during the Born in the USA tour. These two men symbolized the band itself, the relationship with the band and its fans, and to see them back together, there's just, it really was indescribable. Exactly. And then uh, then Bruce paid uh, Clarence back uh, four days later than, than at the trade wins. I was very fortunate to be there. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't know about that. I did not go. But uh, but yeah, that was a pretty pretty fun show from what I, what I could tell on the recording anyway. That was a good night. And the next night I was not at the Letterman taping. Of course, it was the last show of Late Night with David Letterman, a seminal show for all of us who had been in college around that time. <laughs> and he had always wanted to have Bruce on and Bruce made an unannounced appearance at the end of the final show, closing out Letterman on NBC. He did glory days and got up on the piano. And <laughs> that was uh, uh, an amazing moment itself. And then of course, the next night they would wind up at the garden. We've talked about it before. We're not going to get into it here. The circumstances of that show were certainly different than what took place at the Meadowlands because of an incident with the crowd but the 92-93 band wrapped things up with a benefit in memory of Kristen Ann Carr, who had passed away earlier that year. And then I went off and moved across the country. And what you went, you were done with college and started your post-collegiate life. And <laughs> Bruce moved forward and we all just wound up in places. I don't know. I mean, like <laughs> you think back on it now, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's very powerful. It's very powerful to think about those nights and to think personally about what, what they meant. And then to know, you know, what we walked out into, which was massive changes in certainly my life and yours. Yeah. And then never knew when that was when Bruce was going to take the stage again, that was always the feeling after every tour, especially after, after 88, uh, where he took the four and a half year break. And you know, it was just, it was still almost two and a half years later before, uh, he, he embarked on, on an actual tour. And of course, between the, between June 93, November 95, a lot of stuff happened. As you said, the, uh, the little the quick reunion with the E Street Band in '95 to record the tracks for Greatest Hits, and then to make a couple of appearances, unannounced and announced. And then, of course, he, as you said, he recorded the an album with the '92 band. Never heard it. Haven't heard it. <laughs> Hopefully, we hope we, to hear it. We hope to hear it one day. And and yeah, it was uh, it, it was definitely kind of a closing of a, of a chapter in, in Bruce's career. And he opened up another one uh, two and a half years later. And, and then of course, another one in 99 with the full reunion tour with the band. And here we are. And I just want to point out, we've actually done several episodes about this period in the early nineties, all the way back in the first year of the show, we did one called I'm your detail man Springsteen in 1994, 95, which actually covers much of what Flynn just, 
talked about. So go back and check out those episodes. In fact, I believe it was one of those episodes that, that our buddy Kirk Minahan said was what really turned him onto the show that we were talking about such little known periods of Bruce's <laughs> career. Well, we also did the one uh, between 88 and 92. I thought that yes. one was just, it was just as interesting um, because so much, so little is known, is known about that time. And it's a very mysterious time. And of course, 94 or 95 were a little bit less mysterious, but they were certainly, Bruce was quite active. He just couldn't seem to figure out what he wanted to do uh, until he finally came upon the, uh, the Jode concept, the Jode album, and then the subsequent tour. Well, I think that's the lasting impression of these shows was that he really didn't fully know what he wanted to do. He had put this new band together. They had come to the end of this tour. He had reunited with East Street. I think most of the audience was hoping certainly that the East Street reunion would continue and certainly that they would tour sooner than they wound up touring. But eventually he found this path and it was it was through the ghost of Tom Jode. And I think that that did help set up much of what was to come later when he did reunite with the band. We've talked about this before in 1999. And, you know, here we sit today and they're on tour in 2023. So it's just, uh, uh, again, a very powerful thing to look back on. And uh, just for speaking for myself, uh, really great past 30 years oh absolutely i was thinking more along the lines of the last 24 just being amazing but yeah i gotta extend it back to 92 and hard to yeah. believe it's been uh 31 years since that tour kicked off june 15th 92 in stockholm time yeah, flies I, man <laughs> really where does it go but anyway we don't want to get started on that i'll just bring this to a close now and wrap things up. None But the Brave is presented by Evergreen Podcast. It's produced by Bull Market Entertainment. If you haven't had a chance yet, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Podcast. And on Twitter, you can find us at MBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening. And we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. 